Hey there, and welcome to Pwncast. Today, we're talking pad, baby. I mean, pain, agitation, and delirium. Hang on, did you just try to make that sound sexy? Yep. Did it work? No. Mm. I thought we were talking 8F bundle. We are. Oh. Are they the same? Which one should I call it? Mm. Oh, just hold on one moment. We'll get there. Let's go back to that sexy part. Why did you feel the need to sound like that? Because this topic is really important, and I want people to care about it and, you know, be interested. People aren't interested and don't care about PAD, ADF bundle, whatever we're calling it? I think people, if you pin them down, will say that they are interested in pain, agitation, and delirium. But it's the basics. It's unsexy. You know, like dieting or working out. We know it's important, but I'd much rather be dropping a Blakemore tube into a bleeding esophageal varices patient than really talking about restraints and sedation and that kind of stuff. It's also one of the first things to drop off when we get busy or need to do something else. You know, imagine the patient was just intubated, moving around a bit, bucking the ventilator, and the nurse has been stuck in the room for several hours while we're putting in lines and tubes, and he hasn't been able to go assess his other patients yet. Why not start a fentanyl and propofol drip? Maybe throw on some restraints. Hopefully not a benzo drip. Or finally go get some time to see his other patients. Or maybe eat or take the few seconds that he has to go to the bathroom. Or that patient on night shift who keeps getting their hand up near their face. Oh, are they itching their nose? Or are you going to try to pull that tube out? They've been on the vent for several days, but they're otherwise stable. We've all seen these patients end up on higher amounts of continuous sedation than maybe they should be on. Just like dieting, it's tempting in the moment to have that piece of chocolate cake. Or in this case, propofol. You don't have to deal with the consequences till later in the ICU stay when we can't get them off the ventilator. And that's hard to attribute to one action, one shift, one staff member. Chocolate propofol sounds amazing. Dude, that's pretty heavy. Can we back up for a minute and kind of talk about the basics? All right. PAD stands for pain, agitation, and delirium and has been a focus of good quality ICU care for many years now. The Society of Critical Care Medicine puts out guidelines regularly on how to best address PAD in the ICU. Their most recent iteration was in 2013, and we'll send a link to you in the show notes. So what is the A to F bundle, and what's the difference between PAD and the A to F bundle? The A to F bundle is a bundle of care that's designed to operationalize the SCCM PAD guidelines. It was developed at Vanderbilt by Wes Ely. His team published a tremendous amount of research about PAD and developed these guidelines to help ICUs around the country improve their PAD care. So let me see if I got this right. It's a way to think about and organize the SCCM guidelines. Yeah, exactly. So it promotes the new culture of light sedation, attention to delirium, and also a focus on early progressive mobility. So let's rewind a little bit and talk about why all of this stuff is important. The tide in the ICU has been changing for many years now. It's been a slow process that's been gradually occurring in the environment since I've been practicing medicine. PAD guidelines are important because keeping our patients without pain, without agitation, and without delirium, it's all been shown to reduce ICU length of stay and, surprisingly, reduce mortality. How many things do we do on a daily basis that 
have honestly never showed any mortality benefit in the ICU. Well, let's see. Off the top of my head, I can think of early nutrition, sorry RDs, PA caths, sorry my CCU buddies, pressors in general, sorry everyone, steroids and just about anything, sorry pulmonologists, intensivists, I guess everyone, early goal-directed therapy, sorry Chad Case. Ooh, ouch. Should I keep going? No, I think that we're going to keep offending pretty much all of our listeners if we go down this list any further. So... You know, we joke about it. It, It's really a great take-home point. Y'all, listen up. This is important. We kind of brush it off because a lot of this stuff is common sense. But if we implement aspects of this bundle into our daily ICU care of our patients, they're going to get off the ventilator sooner, they're going to get out of our ICU sooner, and they will live more frequently. That's a big deal. So interesting. We fight tooth and nail over other studies, over just a few percentage points of a reduction in a surrogate marker, especially in things like fluid resuscitation. But it's very frequent to see high-functioning hospitals not doing as well at PAD as they should. So really the hallmark of a good resuscitationist is someone who's really good at implementing the PAD guidelines. You know, the other problem that we're having is we're starting to pay more and more attention to the idea of PICS, or post-intensive care syndrome. This is essentially how having a significant critical illness affects our patients in the long run. Research in this field has shown PAD guidelines to reduce PICS, likely due to reducing time on the ventilator and time in the ICU. Now, if there's a tiny chance that we still haven't convinced you that the PAD guidelines and the ADEF bundle are important to your ICU care, and you're maybe a money person, then you'll be happy to know that following PAD guidelines also significantly reduces hospital costs, again, likely through reduced ICU length of stay and reduced ventilator time. If you're not a hospital administrator, you may ask, why should you care? But I've always been of the opinion that caring about hospital finances would behoove the average clinician. It may help you someday when you need more resources or more providers. If you can point to your group implementing PAD guidelines and saving the hospital X amount of dollars, that's clearly going to be beneficial for you. Now that we've talked about what PAD means and why it's important, let's sort of walk through the guidelines and what makes up the ADEF bundle. So what does this stand for, Jeremy? The ADEF bundle is pretty easy, A, B, C, D, E, F. A is assess, prevent, and manage pain. B is both perform an SAT and an SBT. C is choice of analgesia and sedation, choose wisely. D is delirium, assess, prevent, and manage. E is early mobility and exercise. And finally, F is family, engagement, and empowerment. So let's take some time and walk through what each letter actually means. Remember, the first letter that we talk about is A, which stands for assess, prevent, and manage pain. So the first letter in the bundle is for pain? Yeah, A A for pain. I mean... Assess, prevent, and manage pain. Yeah, acronyms are hard. That's what I meant. <laughs> so are ICU patients even in pain? I remember when I first started, we all thought that having a tube down someone's throat was maybe pretty painful. Is that true, since we have patients now that are wide awake on the vent and they look pretty comfortable? That's a good question, and maybe we should turn to the literature to answer it. So anytime it's been studied, it is determined that the majority of ICU patients do experience pain in their time in the ICU. 
Not surprisingly, patients identify this pain as a great source of stress while they're in the intensive care unit. It's routinely put as the patient's greatest concern and then further the leading cause of insufficient sleep. The stress response associated with pain also can have consequences in the ICU with increasing circulating catecholamines, vasoconstriction, impaired tissue perfusion. You're going to just stop there? Yes. You're saying all my favorite words. You got to keep going. Jeremy, we promised we'd keep this episode light on physiology. No more made-up physiology words. Inflammatory oxidative hurricane is going to take off. You and everyone else are going to see. So if they're in pain, then we should sedate them so they don't feel it. Actually, no, we shouldn't. It's important to distinguish between analgesia and sedation. Those are not the same things. Some drugs like fentanyl can provide both a little bit of sedative, and a little bit of analgesia. But it's important when using these drugs to ask yourself, which one is it that I'm trying to achieve? Being the first letter, this one may be the most important. Naturally. The SECM guidelines and the ADF bundle materials are very clear. Treat pain first. Don't reach for your sedative first. They contend that the average ICU patient on the ventilator can be managed with only intermittent pushes of analgesics and zero sedatives and without continuous drips. So how do we know if our ICU patients are in pain? I mean, they can't talk. There's a tube in their vocal cords. Uh, What am I supposed to do? You're so astute today, Jeremy. You're just (laughs) really on point. There's several scoring systems used to determine if your vented patient is in pain. Our healthcare system uses CPOT, or the Critical Care Pain Observation Tool. We will link it. Show notes. What? Can we just yell show notes rather than having to say we'll link it in the show notes every time? Because we're going to say this a lot during this episode. Mm, Sure, that sounds actually kind of fun. Let's do it. I like it. But the CPOT score looks at facial expressions, body movements, muscle tension, and ventilator compliance to determine if your patient is in pain. Can't we just use vital signs to monitor pain? I mean, we've all seen tachycardia, panicardia get better with better pain control. I think you made up another word. Yeah, that one will take off too. I don't know about that. SCCM guidelines recommend against using vital signs as pain assessment. They make a good point, though, that you can use the abnormal vital sign as a cue to perform your actual pain assessment, like CPOT. Wow. I mean, how many people do you look at and find them hypertensive and tachycardic and say they're probably in pain? So we sh- that should be a trigger for us to do an actual score. Exactly. And that's the way to think about it. Not to treat a vital sign. Interesting. Let's say that we do our pain assessment. We confirm that our patient is indeed in pain. What do we do next? Like we said, you want to treat that pain first and not just sedate them. So the way the protocol is written is we give them intermittent pushes of analgesics, typically an opioid. In our hospital protocol, we give fentanyl, either 50 or 100 micrograms IV push, every 15 minutes until their CPOT score is negative. The way we wrote it in our protocol is you should give three doses of IV push before switching to a continuous drip of fentanyl, which is mirrored directly off of Vanderbilt's protocol. I'm going to float a situation by you. You intubate a patient who's very large, very strong. You know that they're probably going to need some continuous sedation anyway. They're intubated, paralyzed now with rocuronium. 
why don't you just reach for a fentanyl propofol drip? You know you're going to need to sedate them. What's the point of pushing three doses of fentanyl and then getting the drip? You know you're going to start anyway. Nope. The protocol is clear here. Treat the pain first and then move to your continuous drips only if you need to. So we've made a big deal to say that all of this recommendation is evidence-based. But is there any evidence behind intermittent bolus of analgesia over a continuous sedative? Why, yes, there is. I'll link an RCT. Show notes. You got it. Why are we using fentanyl over other opioids? Is it stronger? Actually, in the PAD literature, all opioids have been shown to be equally efficacious at relieving pain in the ICU patients. That was a big word. Yeah, efficacious. I said it right, too, I think. But fentanyl seems to be preferred because it causes less hypotension than the other opioid agents, and it has less metabolites that accumulate. We can link a show notes. I was going to say table from the SCCM guidelines comparing half-life, onset, and dosage. Do we ever use non-opioids to treat pain in ventilated patients? So there's some PAD studies looking at non-opioids, and all that literature says is basically using non-opioids is beneficial because it can reduce the amount of opioids you need to keep your patient pain-free. I think it's important to remember that on long-term mechanical ventilation, Drugs like fentanyl can accumulate and potentially cause opioid withdrawal. What are our non-opioid choices? So typically the ones researched are acetaminophen, ketorolac or toradol, and ketamine. All have been shown to reduce opioid requirements with pretty good results. Are there patients where treat pain first doesn't apply? Of course there are, but not as many as we used to think. Most of the big names in the PAD community feel like patients with severe ARDS or refractory hypoxemia, patients with intracranial hemorrhage, status epilepticus, and patients requiring paralytics still need deeper sedation and continuous drips without necessarily treating pain first. They also mentioned that neuropathic pain is poorly treated with opioids alone. Maybe it would be a good idea in these patients to add gabapentin. So let's move on to B. Both SATs and SBTs. Spontaneous awakening trial and spontaneous breathing trial, not CPAP trial. So why did these make the bundle? What's the significance here? Consistently over many years of research, coordinating an SAT with an SBT has been shown to be clinically beneficial. But how? Stopping continuous sedatives prevents buildup of the drug within our system. It also reduces the use of benzodiazepine drips. It helps us to reduce ventilator time and reduce ICU length of stay. The original trial was referred to as the Wake Up and Breathe study, or the ABC study that sort of kicked off the A-F bundle as we now know it. It found pairing SBTs and SATs into a protocol with safety screens and appropriate failure criteria resulted in reduced time on the ventilator, reduced ICU length of stay, and even one-year mortality benefit. Before we dive into performing an SAT-SBT on our patient, we need to make sure that our patient is safe to undergo an SAT-SBT in the first place. Uh-huh. Then we typically coordinate with the RN and the RT to perform the two together. Uh-huh. So what happens if they fail? Uh-huh. Oh, oh it's my <laughs> turn to say something. The guidelines ask that you put them at a half of their previous dose of medications. A common question that I get asked all the time is, 
should this patient undergo an SAT SBT today if we know we aren't going to extubate them? We have a procedure planned today, or we know they're going to fail. The answer to that question is absolutely, because it will optimize them from a pad standpoint to be ready for extubation when that time comes, even if it's not today. Let's move on to C, choice of analgesia and sedation, or the Choose Wisely campaign. We've already talked about opioids and which analgesic agents we should choose, so let's dive right into our sedatives. So when am I allowed to use sedatives in the PAD guidelines in the 8F bundle? Good question. If you're truly thinking in terms of PAD, then we've treated pain first, we've made sure that we've relieved it with a negative CPOT, and now we can move into the second aspect of PAD, which is agitation. The shorter answer is that sedatives on vented patients in the ICU should only be used if the patient is agitated or anxious. If my patient isn't agitated or anxious, I shouldn't sedate at all? That's correct. Some patients can absolutely be managed with IV pushes of pain medicine periodically throughout the shift. So they're just going to sit there staring at me on the ventilator? Yes. And this actually really works. When pad guidelines are implemented well, it's not uncommon to walk into an ICU and see the majority of your vented patients awake and waving at you as you walk in the room. (laughs) The majority of patients? Yes. If you remember back to the patients on the list of who needs deeper sedation, it's actually a pretty short list. Hmm. Okay. Jeremy's trepidation is used as an example of a very common reaction ICU leaders get when they try to roll out PAD initiatives. We know what you're telling us is maybe evidence-based. Don't say maybe. It is evidence-based. Okay. It's definitely evidence-based and best for our patients, but... If our whole career we've been used to these deeply sedated, ventilated patients, it's impossible to expect the staff to change overnight. To buy into the fact that we're going to have all of these awake patients on the ventilator is really uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree with that. It's actually a wide chasm between a deeply sedated RAS of minus 5 patient and a true RAS of 0 patient. And we'll get to RAS in a minute. How do we get our ICUs from rolling continuous sedatives on every vented patient to the majority of our patients not being managed with continuous sedatives at all? It's incredibly challenging, and it takes effort from every single team member in the ICU. It truly is a multidisciplinary approach. It takes buy-in from administration for proper staffing to actually do this, providers, provider leaders, staff nurses, charge nurses, nurse leaders, respiratory therapists, and RT leaders, ICU pharmacists, physical therapists, and family support staff. You know, the more that we talk about this one, I think that this is the fundamental aspect of how we should be running our ICUs on a daily basis. A team-based approach to practicing medicine with buy-in from all team members who touch ICU patients is going to improve patient outcomes. John, are you tearing up? That was, that was beautiful, man. But getting that level of buy-in and change in practice takes time. Unfortunately, a lot of time. These guidelines are not new. The most recent SCCM version is from 2013. Vanderbilt has added letters to the ADF bundle over the years, but some version has existed for a long, long time. We've been working on emphasizing PAD guidelines in the ADF bundle for several years in our healthcare system, and we still have opportunities to get better. I think probably every healthcare system that cares about these things should be and is saying the same thing. All right, so let's get back to sedatives a bit. 
What do we know about choosing them? Well, there's a bajillion studies on sedatives in the ICU, over 90 by last count, and that was a few years ago. So surely now we know what the best one to use, right? Um, no. Huh? Yep, but we know which one you shouldn't use. Yay for small victories. There's no doubt that in the literature and all of the guidelines that benzodiazepine drips should be avoided at all cost on any patient in the ICU who's ventilated. They haven't been recommended since the guidelines released in 2002. Why is that? Why were they ever recommended? They have amnestic properties in in addition to their sedative properties, which you can see how they would be appealing, especially when ventilators were less comfortable for patients. Benzos are cleared through the liver and utilize the CYP450 pathway, which makes it difficult to clear with hepatic dysfunction. Lorazepam's half-life and duration is increased with renal failure, and the active metabolites from midazolam and diazepam accumulate with prolonged administration, especially with renal function. Further, benzo clearance decreases with age, so this can be a devastating choice in the elderly who have both renal impairment and hepatic impairment. The studies that looked at benzo drips in ICU vented patients noticed major variability and a longer time awakening once the drug was discontinued. What do we use then? So the two other most commonly used are propofol and dexmedetomidine. Let's talk about propofol next. Probably propofol is the most commonly used sedative in the ICU, at least ours, uh, but I would guess also in ICUs around the world. So propofol has sedative, hypnotic, anxiolytic, amnestic, and even anti-emetic and anti-convulsant properties. But it's important to remember that it has zero analgesic properties. John, can we please talk about receptors, please, please? All right, just for one second, though. Yes. Propofol works on multiple receptors, including GABA, that's gamma-aminobutyric acid, like benzodiazepines, glycine, nicotine, and even M1 muscarinic receptors. All right, I think I've hit my receptor limit for this episode. I have a couple more. Whatever. Propofol is highly lipid-soluble and quickly crosses the blood-brain barrier, making its onset for sedation rapid. It also rapidly redistributes into the peripheral tissues due to that same lipid solubility, high volume of distribution. It has high hepatic clearance, which results in quick offset of the effect following discontinuation of the drug. This makes it highly useful in an ICU setting. Are there any problems with long-term administration? It sounds pretty good. There are. Using it long-term can oversaturate the peripheral tissues and lead to prolonged emergence from sedation after discontinuation. Everyone who has worked in an ICU is familiar with its ability to cause respiratory depression and hypotension, which can be more pronounced when you combine it with opioids. There are other side effects that we won't necessarily go into in the interest of time, but they're worth knowing. Hypertriglyceridemia, acute pancreatitis, and the rare propofol infusion syndrome with an incidence of about 1%. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah. Uh, Actually, when I was researching, I thought that was pretty high for a rare disorder. Propofol is dissolved in a 10% lipid emulsion containing egg and soybean, so it should be avoided or at least used with caution when your patient has an egg or soybean allergy. Propofol sounds pretty good on paper. I mean, it has some issues. Why is it the most commonly used? If you're following PAD guidelines and the ADF bundle well, then your goal should always be to minimize sedation in both depth and duration. Sounds right. 
Well, then Propofol is a good choice due to its rapid onset, rapid off capability. Let's continue our drug review fun and move on to the always controversial dexmedetomidine. Let's do it. Lots of love and hate in the ICUs for DEX. DEX is a selective alpha-2 receptor agonist with sedative, analgesic, and sympatholytic properties. Mm, that's a pretty good pronunciation. Thanks. Its sedation effect is much different than the other medications we've discussed. When patients are sedated on DEX, they can typically be easily aroused, more interactive, quite quickly, while still on the drug. It has minimal respiratory depression as well. It does have a fast onset of action, but not near the speed of propofol. It typically takes about 15 minutes to take effect, and peak sedation isn't seen for about an hour. As an aside, on the things I've observed with staff members more familiar and more used to propofol compared to dexmedetomidine is that they try to titrate it like propofol, and they end up going back and forth between too much and too little of the medication, and they really struggle to find the sweet spot for their patient due to titrating it quickly like propofol. Really good point. Dex, just like propofol, is rapidly distributed into the peripheral tissues and it's cleared through the liver. So it's important to note that in the U.S., Dex has only been approved for short-term sedation, less than 24 hours, and at a maximum dose of 0.7 micrograms per kg per hour. We're using it off-label when we use it for longer and at higher doses. Yes, we are actually. But that being said, it's conceded in the PAD guidelines by SCCM that safety has been demonstrated by several studies for greater than 24 hours and at a higher dose, up to 1.5 microgram per kg per hour. Because DEX doesn't affect respiratory drive, it's actually the only sedative approved for use on non-intubated ICU patients. Although when I was researching, I found this interesting. It can lead to the loss of oropharyngeal muscle tone, which could lead to airway obstruction. So it's important to monitor patients' airways on the drug when you're in the ICU. Has DEX been compared to other sedatives in studies in ICU patients? Yes. When compared to benzodrips, it resulted in less delirium and shorter duration of ventilation, but not reduced ICU length of stay or hospital length of stay. Which is interesting because we know that benzos are harmful. So, you know, we're kind of comparing any agent to a harmful agent. So we're going to see benefit. Sure. Clearly propofol or dex are looking like our best two options. Have they been compared head to head? Yes. And there's been no significant difference between duration of ICU stay or time on the ventilator between the two drugs. Earlier, you mentioned the love-hate relationship of dex in the ICU. What do you mean by that? Yes, there really is. And I think this stems from a few years ago, dexmedetomidine was not yet generic and it was extremely expensive. Healthcare systems felt it was being overused. At our healthcare system, one large hospital was spending millions of dollars a year just on Presidex. So there was an attempted crackdown on its usage. And I think it kind of got a dirty name due to that. But it's generic now, right? Well, yes, it is much cheaper than it was in the past. Last time I checked, which was actually yesterday, it was about $30 a bottle compared to in the past when it was brand, it used to be 300 to $400 a bottle. But that's still more expensive than Propofol, which is about $10 a bottle. $20 difference in an ICU really isn't that big of a deal, though. Right. I thought so, too, until I talked to Don Wright, one of our ICU pharmacists. He's been one of our leaders on the PAD committee for several years now. 
He gave me a great patient scenario about cost I'm going to give you. All right, let's hear it. So you take an 80-kilogram patient on a moderate dose of both medications. Okay. If he's on Presidex at 1 mic per kg per hour, that would be running at roughly 20 mLs per hour. The bottle would need to be changed out about every two and a half hours or 9.6 bottles per day. And if he's on propofol? So let's say you put him on a comparative dose of propofol, about 30 mics per kg per minute. That would be running at 14.4 mLs per hour and would mean the bottle is changed out every 6.9 hours or 3.5 bottles per day. What does that put for the total daily cost for both of these scenarios? So that puts you at $317 per day for Presidex and about $35 per day for Propofol. And that's just the cost to the hospital. The cost to the patient is even more. Wow. So that does start to add up. Where does that leave us now? Our group in the PAD committee's current recommendation is that given they were compared head-to-head with no difference, we should default to Propofol first given the cost difference unless there is a specific reason the patient needs Presidex. Good examples would be a patient who's not intubated or one who has alcohol withdrawal. So to wrap up the different sedatives, the summary is avoid benzo drips unless the patient has status epilepticus or some other special circumstance. Propofol and dexmedetomidine are head-to-head equivalent in outcomes, so know the positives and negatives of each drug and select the best drug for your patient. If your patient can have either drug, maybe go with propofol to save on cost and spend that money elsewhere, like a better mobility program, which we're going to get to next. To even further summarize, treat pain first, then, and only then, if your patient is agitated or anxious, reach for your sedative. Use as little as needed to keep your patient agitation-free. Now that we've finished the drug portion, how do we monitor our patient's agitation levels? It's a great segue into the RAS or the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. Show notes! We're not going to read these off to you, but we do want to explain a few things about it. It's a scoring system based on zero, being equilibrium, and positive numbers indicating increasing agitation, and negative numbers indicating increasing sedation. PAD guidelines and ADF bundles say that our RAS target should be zero. That means our patient is free from agitation, but not heavily sedated. The default orders for pain, agitation, delirium in our healthcare system indicate that we target a RAS of negative one to zero. We should really be shooting for zero, which RAS defines as alert, but calm. Let's talk about negative one and negative two for a bit because I feel like people don't always recognize what level their patient is truly at. A RAS of negative one is not fully alert, but can open eyes to voice, and here's the key, maintain eye contact for 10 seconds. That's a long time. Yes, it is, and I feel like less experienced staffers may forget that point if they just read the not fully alert part and opens eyes to voice. Their patient may really be at a RAS of negative two when they think they're at negative one. It sounds like a small deal, but when you add up days at deeper sedation, more drug accumulation, it can add up to a longer ICU stay and longer time on the ventilator. A RAS of negative 2 still awakens to voice, but can't maintain eye contact for at least 10 seconds. So that's still pretty awake. Right. A RAS of negative 3 is movement or eye opening to voice, but no eye contact. So even a RAS of negative 3 is fairly awake. Exactly. 
Negative four is movement or eye-opening to physical stimulation. My fear is that staff may think their patient is a zero when they're negative one or negative two, and they may think they're at negative one when in fact they're at a RAS of negative two or negative three, and they may think they're at a RAS of negative two when in fact they may be at a four. The takeaway message is know the RAS score in and out and keep your patient at a true zero to negative one. This is going to limit sedation regardless of which drug you choose and get your patient better, faster. Man, it just took us a long time to get through C. I think it just highlights how important C is for our ICU patients. All right, let's move on to D, which is delirium. Assessment, prevent, and manage. What is delirium? Delirium is an acute onset cerebral dysfunction, or essentially a change in baseline mental status. That's pretty succinct. Thanks. But I still don't know what it means. Oh, okay. Well, how about this? It's routinely characterized by change in level of consciousness, disorganized thinking, inattention, reduced ability to focus, change in cognition, and finally, perceptual disturbance, which means hallucinations or delusions. I think a lot of times when we think about delirium, we think about that last group, patients with hallucinations or delusions. That's a common mistake. These components of delirium are considered hyperactive delirium and is actually less common than hypoactive delirium, which is more calm, lethargic, confused patients. In reality, PAD clinicians feel that inattention should be considered its hallmark symptom, not hallucinations or delusions. So maybe we're thinking of just our hyperactive patients with positive symptoms as delirious, but we're missing out on all of our hypoactive delirium patients with negative symptoms. Exactly. Delirium in ICU-vented patients is insanely common. Most studies peg it at about 80% of vented patients. Wow. That's, that's a really high number. And to no surprise, that means it's an extremely costly health problem. It's estimated at costing upwards of $16 billion, with a B billion, healthcare dollars a year, Yet another good reason that we need to do a good job managing PAD. And of the delirious patients in the ICU, they estimate that the hyperactive type that we typically think of is only 2% of delirious patients, that the vast majority of our delirious patients are either hypoactive delirium or mixed delirium, which is alternating between hyperactive and hypoactive states. So why do we care so much about patients in the ICU becoming delirious? It's been shown to be an independent predictor of negative outcomes. I'm talking negative outcomes like mortality, hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, cost of care, and even long-term cognitive impairment with a potential for a permanent dementia-like state. Let's talk about how ICU patients become delirious in the first place. The short version is that it's very multifactorial. Oh, that's such a cop-out. <laughs> it is, though. Uh, let's break it down. It could be related to the disease state, like sepsis, which is a very common one. It could be iatrogenic, like exposure to too much opioids or sedative medications. It could be environmental. The lights are on, prolonged immobility, restraints, sleep disturbance. I, I mean... It really is multifactorial. What is important about delirium is being aware of its severe consequences and high incidence in ICU patients and assessing for it and preventing it if possible. Don't wait until your patient is hallucinating to think about delirium. You should think about it with every ICU patient that you see every single day. Let's talk about delirium assessment. 
The SECM guidelines recommend monitoring all patients at moderate risk of delirium at least once a shift. They recommend using an assessment scoring system like the one we use, which is CAM-ICU, which stands for Confusion Assessment Method for the ICU. These tools have been extensively studied and evaluated and are the most valid and reliable for assessment of delirium that we have. Show notes. The reason assessment scores like CAM-ICU are so important is that we are prone to miss our hypoactive delirium patients because they're less obvious. We've done a good job implementing CAM-ICU scores into our daily interdisciplinary round scripts so that the whole team knows if a patient is CAM-ICU positive, has delirium, or CAM-ICU negative, doesn't have delirium. Something interesting the PAD committee has talked about is that you may see incidents of delirium in your ICUs go up after implementing good quality care. Say what? (laughs) The proposed theory is that you are getting closer to the true incidence of delirium in your patient population before you were perhaps sedating patients too deeply and missing their delirium entirely, or you weren't screening for hypoactive delirium and you missed those patients entirely, and you just caught your hyperactive delirium patients. It's like golf. You learn a new swing technique and you get worse. That's pretty good. Pretty good analogy, Jeremy. Thanks. We've talked about assessment. Let's talk about prevention. Prevention strategies for delirium can be categorized into pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic or combined. So what are the non-pharmacologic ways we can prevent delirium? Early mobility, which we're going to talk about in the next section, has been shown to reduce delirium, and it's given as a strong recommendation by the SCCM guidelines based on quality evidence. Other ways to prevent delirium include repeatedly reorienting the patients, which is something we work on families to help us do, noise reduction, hearing aids, putting their glasses on them. These have all been shown to reduce delirium in general hospitalized patients, and so we should apply that to ICU patients as well. As of the writing of the 2013 guidelines, there are no official recommendations for pharmacologic or combined prevention therapies. There are, however, ongoing studies looking at antipsychotics such as Haldol and Seroquel looking for improvements in the prevention of delirium, but they're not recommended currently for prevention in the ACCM guidelines. There are some studies showing promise in surgical patients that haven't yet been replicated in general ICU patients. Presidex is also being studied for delirium prevention, but is not recommended for this specific purpose either by the SCCM. We're going to move forward to treatment of delirium. The SCCM guidelines recommend the use of antipsychotics like Seroquel or Haldol for the treatment of delirium. We've had a couple small studies where they've shown to reduce the duration of delirium. They did note that a large multi-center RCT is needed in this area because we don't have one yet. Most of the studies in pharmacological treatment of delirium are smaller, sort of, pilot studies. Hopefully we'll have more robust evidence in the future, but for now, to step beyond the guidelines and tell you what our current practice is, we're using Haldol and Seroquel pretty frequently for the treatment of delirium when the QT interval allows. And we're actually studying Seroquel for delirium prevention in our ICUs. Do you have a preference between Haldol and Seroquel? My preference is something I've built up over the years. It's kind of a conglomeration of the people I respect uh, working with in the ICU. And so what I've ultimately landed on is using Haldol PRN. And when I want to schedule a dose of something, I tend to use more Seroquel. And the reason is I really like being able to steadily increase the dose of the, over the course of several shifts. 
it just feels more titratable to me. And so that's my preference. Should we be using Presidex for the treatment of delirium? Just like with prevention, there's no literature to support that Presidex reduces delirium specifically. However, there is evidence that it reduces delirium when you compare it to benzos. So we do see a lot of people switch to it to assist with extubating a delirious patient. Uh, I agree. It, it seems to work well for this purpose because it's so much more titratable than Seroquel and Haldol on an immediate level as a continuous strip. It can be used throughout the extubation process, remember, because it doesn't depress the respiratory drive. And so you're not going to have a, necessarily a problem with it in your non-intubated patient. Now we've made it down to E of the ADF bundle, which is early mobility and exercise. Just because these last two won't take us as long as the first three doesn't mean they're not as important. As we mentioned earlier, early mobility actually has the only data for prevention of delirium and has the best data for reducing days with delirium. So at the risk of sounding easy, what's early mobility? I've seen it defined as daily activities with ICU patients starting early on in their ICU stay. The ADF bundle makes it clear it doesn't have to be a physical therapist, although they are a key players in a high-functioning ICU's mobility plan. They are quick to say that anyone, nurse, respiratory therapist, provider, can help provide early mobility, especially when we're just talking sitting or passive range of motion. When I think of early mobility, I'm thinking about the flashy walking intubated patients up and down the hallway. Yes, that's the big flashy success stories of early mobility when we're able to walk patients on the ventilator, but that's not all there is to early mobility. In fact, the ADAF bundle even recommends early mobility for patients with a RAS of negative 4 or negative 5. I didn't know that until I researched this for the podcast. Yeah, they recommend passive range of motion for patients even on deep sedation. Patients with a RAS of negative 2 to negative 3, they recommend passive range of motion and sitting. And for those patients targeted negative 1 to positive 1, they recommend active range of motion, active exercise, things like sitting, standing, walking, and even activities of daily living. This recommendation was used in the ACT ICU study at Vanderbilt, which is one of several studies that found benefit in early mobility. What's our hospital system doing for early mobility? And what else can we be doing? The biggest thing we've done is put mandatory physical therapy consults on all vented patients. It's part of the initial order set you use when you intubate a patient. So all patients get physical therapy when on the vent, right? Well, of course, there's some patients who don't need early mobility or can't have early mobility, like paralyzed patients with severe ARDS, for example. But putting in a PT evaluation as part of the order set means that they get to mindfully exclude these patients and hit the majority of patients. We worried the alternative would be for them to just see the healthiest of our vented patients. And that isn't the intent of the early mobility part of the ADF bundle. There are a lot of ways to set this up. Some hospitals have one physical therapist per unit or, or one PT dedicated to the various ICUs. Some hospitals have an early mobility team that consists of a nurse, a respiratory therapist, and a physical therapist, and their entire job is going around to the different intensive care units and working with the ventilated patients. What we want to emphasize is that doing something with early mobility is important, even if you just start with some intermittent physical therapy and sitting patients up with passive range of motion. You can always do these things while working toward a more robust plan. So let's finish up with the most recently added letter, and that's F, 
which stands for Family Engagement and Empowerment. Our healthcare system calls this patient and family-centered care. We could easily do a whole episode on this, but I think it's best to provide a summary. The ADAF bundle is about ICU liberation, but over time, it's also about improving patient outcomes after they leave the ICU. More and more research exists on post-intensive care syndrome and the debility that is associated with being critically ill. Anyone who has spent time in the ICU knows how big a role families play in getting our patients better. Oftentimes, when our patients can't speak for themselves, they have to rely on families to do it for them. Something we sometimes forget is it's exhausting having a loved one in the ICU for families. We've all seen that wife or husband that just won't leave the bedside, and they just wear down as the days go on and on. So the goal of including F in the A to F bundle was to emphasize how important families are in the recovery and health of their loved ones. The emphasis is on engaging with the family frequently and empowering them to make appropriate decisions for their loved one. The bundle includes advice on how to communicate with families effectively. Our healthcare system has used the ADAF bundle to establish an open and flexible family presence in our ICUs. Gone are the days of locked ICUs with phones that you have to call in, and this has been replaced with an easily opening door and much more liberal family policies. We have changed our IDR process to include going into each patient's room and discussing the care of that patient in front of the family and giving them the opportunity to ask questions of the entire healthcare team. We spent more time educating all of our providers about communicating with families. We offer regular spiritual and family support from staff members. We're strong advocates of early palliative care consults if the patient is appropriate, and we've expanded the indications for engaging palliative care to not only include goals of care discussions or code status, but also for family support. We try to establish regular family meetings with the protocol in place to start scheduling those within a day or two of admission to our ICUs. We're going to close the family section by saying that the research around families in the ICU is growing, but seen so far that often family members have more distress after the ICU stay than the patient does. We should recognize this and do whatever we can to reduce this potential effect through regular communication, support, and involving the families in ICU decision-making. And with that, we're done. (sighs) You okay, Jared? Yeah, it was just... uh really beefy episode. I know. The more I researched it going into this episode, the more I realized, man, this stuff is important. Much more important than I've given it credit for. You think we made it sexy today? I don't don't think we did that. Well, hopefully our audience feels mm, at least better about pain, agitation, delirium, and the ADEF bundle after listening. Any ICU that aspires to be high-functioning needs to make implementation of PAD and A to F bundle guidelines a top priority, if not the top priority. These guidelines and bundle read like a playbook on how to have a quality ICU. And the impact on mortality, ICU length of stay, ventilator-free days, all independent of the patient's disease state, is impressive. I feel just like eating healthy or maintaining a healthy budget, we have to remain vigilant around the importance of this and make it a habit. Talk in these terms on a daily basis and continue to bring each other up when someone wants to take the easy way out. Absolutely, and we as providers need to support our nurses who are the front line with our patients and, quite frankly, have to do more work on a daily basis when these patients are less sedated. Hospital leaders and administrators need to staff ICUs appropriately to allow for high-quality, 
pain agitation delirium care, knowing it will likely reduce their operating cost by increasing throughput and benefiting ICU quality metrics. And most importantly, we should implement these guidelines because they are the best care for our patients and the best care for our families. And really, that's what's most important. Sounds like you just stuck that landing, Jer. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.